This is the Nietzsche Podcast. So last season we looked at Schopenhauer as educator, an essay where Nietzsche talks about the, quote, genuine men who have cast out the beast, end quote. We might translate this phrase in a paraphrastic sense as referring to a genuinely human being. Because remember, there's a problem that Nietzsche runs into once he begins his project of questioning our metaphysical and moral assumptions and searching for values outside of the absolute value structure that he has criticized and that he will eventually say in the gay science is dead, um, which is you know contained in the symbolic expression, God is dead. The problem is that mankind becomes just a clever species of animal that happened to invent knowledge. In the grand scheme of things, we are an insignificant phenomenon that will come into being and then be wiped away into nothingness um, just as quickly. What Nietzsche begins to search for, then, is some means by which human life can become transcendentally valuable. That is to say, life must become valuable beyond its utility for some social project or some future purpose. Life must become valuable independent of how we judge the proportion of pleasure and pain that occurs within a life. Life has to become valuable um, in, in the sense of an end unto itself, right? But that is exactly what we do not find when we look at human life as just purely a naturalistic phenomenon. And so in some sense, Nietzsche begins his philosophical journey all the way back at the beginning during the Untimely Meditations essays, doing what people normally say Kant was doing, which is um, trying to salvage some sort of transcendent value for life after the decline of religiosity. And the reason why Nietzsche differs uh, from the likes of Kant and other philosophers who saw this transcendent value in the faculty of reason is that Nietzsche rejects that very idea. So why is reason not good enough for Nietzsche? Well, he has a multitude of reasons for devaluing reason, which are all related. But they can roughly be expressed in essence by saying that reason does not serve the role which we think it serves. Reason's not a commander over the passions for Nietzsche. The passions are what he calls the drives, the unconscious, non-rational instincts and motivations, which you know may even express themselves um, as sub-personalities within the individual. This is what governs the human being. Reason is a relationship and a mediating force between the drives. In actual truth, what we often attribute to our own faculty of reason is instead between it's, it's a, a post hoc rationalization for explaining to ourselves why we acted the way we did in a given situation. The rational ego consciousness is the mere surface and skin of the psyche. Oh, the cat is climbing on the desk. Hey, buddy. Let's get off of here. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, what were we talking about? Um, so reason, it's a post hoc rationalization where we explained to ourselves why we acted the way we did. Um, and uh, it's so to Nietzsche, it's the body that governs, it's not the mind. The idea that we could ever accrue enough conscious intellect in order to make ourselves elevated above the rest of the natural world, which does not have transcendent value, that makes no sense to Nietzsche. A million zeros strung together never add up to one, right? If, if intellect is 
something possessed by the many beings uh, within nature to various degrees by the various animals and human beings simply happen to have evolved to have a little more intelligence this doesn't ever add up to setting mankind above the animals where Nietzsche first sees an alternative um, way to redeem mankind is in the rare individuals who have as he says uh, cast out the beast um, which means the bestial passions the things that uh, drive us and that therefore make us no more than animal most men simply follow consciously the same instincts that animals follow unconsciously what nature blindly strives after man strives after with the aid of reason and self-reflection um, so Nietzsche's first inkling then is to look for examples of men who do not simply strive after their animal nature um, because what by striving after our animal passions simply with the aid of reason and self-reflection means we're doing the same thing as the animals albeit in a more intelligent way um, and so Nietzsche looks instead at the mysterious types of people who don't seem to be easily explained by this understanding of mankind exceptional people meaning, of course, um, exceptions, right? If the rule is all animals strive after the objects of their drives, where do we find the exceptions to that rule? And it's the saint, the artist, and the philosopher. These are the exceptions as he states it in that early essay. Where Nietzsche would later change or develop this idea uh, in his later work um, is that he, the idea of casting out the beast is eventually rejected. As, uh, you know, uh, speaking in terms of metaphor here, over the course of his work, Nietzsche recognizes the full consequences of rejecting the Christian morality and seeking instead to construct a morality that celebrates the body and its drives and that celebrates life and celebrates living. So if we're t to take seriously the idea that the passions and the drives are the stuff of life, then we can't elevate mankind by excising that. Nietzsche comes to see the idea of excising the supposedly harmful or the evil or the bestial drives from our hearts that he can he considers that to be christianity's mortal sin against all life was that christianity attempted to do that um and so instead he looks to the ancient greeks whom he interprets as having spiritualized these passions or he considers instead the process of sublimation by which a violent or unacceptable drive can be made into something productive, channeled along productive lines, such that the, the drive expresses itself in a manner that will be healthy for the individual and harmonious with society instead of unhealthy and destructive. And we've covered much of this, again, in the past season, if you want to you know, delve into the, the source material on all of that. But in short, Nietzsche reevaluates what it means to elevate mankind from first believing that mankind could be eleva elevated by removing the animal element to instead arguing that mankind is elevated by becoming master over the animal element by sublimating, refining, and spiritualizing the drives. And so we get to this idea in his later work that the higher man is the passionate man who is also master over his passions. That's the way that uh, Walter Kaufman characterizes it, at least. Now, it may still be unclear as to why Nietzsche rebukes reason um, so thoroughly when we try to imagine the alternatives, um, because what exactly can we say are these other means of self-mastery to be found outside the use of the rational intellect? Um, Nietzsche at times tried to address this question practically, um, such as the passage in the Dawn, uh, where he, he, we've talked about it before. He talks about the six different methods of dealing with the vehemence of a drive. Uh, but more importantly to Nietzsche's broader project, these three higher types, which he discusses in the Schopenhauer as Educator essay, um, 
while they're all listed as examples of men who've cast out the beast, that is to say the early model for Nietzsche's view of a higher man, which he would later grow out of, um, the reason why it's still important to consider these three types is because they offer a historical example of how nature is conquered within the human soul. They offer the historical example of the exception. Why would the human species ever produce a type of person like a philosopher? It's a question that does not have an obvious answer. So we have the saint, the artist, and the philosopher uh, as these three types, and Nietzsche gives them in a slightly different order in the text, but I'm going to do an episode talking about each type of figure in that order, um, saint, artist, philosopher, and this is because elsewhere in Nietzsche's works, um, just when we look at the totality of his ideas, he seems to give a picture that suggests that this is the order in which these three exceptional types of people arose, um, in a, historically speaking. And in some sense, each type is an offshoot or an outgrowth of the type that comes before it, in my opinion. Um, to add a caveat to this, it's a rather important caveat, too. It points to a later insight uh, that is perhaps the thing that led Nietzsche to reevaluate his assessment of who the higher types are and why what makes an exceptional type of human being. Um, once Nietzsche is no longer looking to cast out the beast, but to master the beast, he begins to see the warrior aristocracies of old as a type of higher men, uh, noble spirits for whom all value was contained in things that were embodied. This is the key difference. So beauty was physical beauty. The beauty of the human physique in its prime condition. Truth was also physical. Because what truthfulness meant, what being truthful meant was that your deeds follow from your words. You say you're going to do something, and then you do it. You make promises, you requite, you reward. That's what the true and honest man does. The powerless person, the impotent person is contemptible to Nietzsche, or rather contemptible under the old master morality that Nietzsche wants to rejuvenate, because as part of you know the impotent masses, the average person didn't have the power to requite. It's only with Christianity and other metaphysical beliefs that things like truth and beauty become not physical, but abstracted. And so in the master morality, as Nietzsche sees it, everything that is good is something physical, whereas once this, you know, the slave morality or we might call it just the Christian morality. Once the Christian value system takes hold, the good becomes abstract, spiritual, and immaterial. And so in the final analysis where all these considerations lead Nietzsche is eventually to the idea of the overman, or the Übermensch in German, the idea of the next transformation of humanity, a type so high above humanity that it overcomes what is human, what is previously considered to be human. And so when we chart the related ideas that lead Nietzsche to the overman, what we find are these two juxtaposed ideas. On the one hand, he explored the possibility that the higher type of human being were these three types, saint, artist, and philosopher, who represented at first um, dominating or excising the animal impulses. Later, as Nietzsche reevaluated, he considered that, for example, the saint, uh, particularly the, the ascetics, of metaphysical religions such as Christianity and Buddhism, um, he, he grew to see that, for example, the way that the saint excised the beast rather than mastered it had damaged mankind. Meanwhile, the artist and the philosopher, while admirable in their way, begin to see in Nietzsche's later understanding as lesser types in comparison to these non-artistic, non-theoretical men of action, whom we might say Nietzsche began to see as a representation of his idea of the master morality, of the self-legislating master of one's own passions, uh, who manifests this power over, you know, of command, 
over himself and over the world around him. And so the prefigurations of this idea are also echoed in the Untimely Meditations essay on the use and abuse of history for life, where he talks about the super-historical individual. And so all these candidates for extraordinary types were influential on Nietzsche at different times in his philosophical career. Um, and ultimately, none of these types, even what we were just talking about, the higher man, the master morality, and so on, none of these that have no person who has ever existed so far has ever me measured up to being an overman. And when we get to explaining really what that idea is about, um, how could they? That it's almost not a really a, a it's almost a nonsensical idea to call someone an overman. So the the saint, the artist, the philosopher, and the man of action—they're all approximations of a later idea, um, the overman idea, with which none of them can said to be can be said to be synonymous with that. So what's important is not necessarily how Nietzsche. To, to me, at least, it's not as important how he regarded such a type as the saint or the artist uh, in the final analysis at the end of his career, but what it was that made each type a candidate for being a higher man in the first place. What was it that um, led Nietzsche to, you know, to exalt the saint in the Schopenhauer as educator essay when later, as we'll see uh, in this episode, he absolutely savages the saint or the, the priestly classes of the world, right? And so we're charting the development of Nietzsche's thought on what it is that elevates mankind and offers us transcendent value and how his ideas on this changed. And there's no better among these higher types to begin with than the saint because he undoubtedly offers an example of how mankind can be elevated beyond the natural world without philosophical reason. And his assessment of the saintly type is ultimately negative, um, even though the saint would seem to suit in principle exactly what Nietzsche was looking for at the beginning of his philosophical career, but he comes to believe that the saint is a dead end for mankind. And so for the rest of this episode, we're talking about the saint. We'll start with the idea, um, well, the, the passage in Schopenhauer as educator, where Nietzsche first raises the idea. Uh, I'll quote it in an abridged form. Quote, the sincere men who have cast out the beast, the philosophers, artists, and saints, Nature, qui nunquam facet sultum, has made her one leap in creating them, a leap of joy as she feels herself for the first time at her goal. Nature needs the saint. In him the ego has melted away, and the suffering of his life is, practically, no longer felt as individual, but as the spring of the deepest sympathy and intimacy with all living creatures. He sees the wonderful transformation scene that the comedy of becoming never reaches, the attainment at length of the high state of man after which all nature is striving that she may be delivered from herself there are moments sparks from the clear fire of love in whose light we understand the word i no longer there is something beyond our being that comes for those moments to the hither side of it and this is why we long in our hearts for a bridge from here to there End quote. so what is nietzsche talking about here uh, the ego has melted away in the saint. Let's first be clear about who we're talking about um, with the word saint. You know, here we, we don't have to accept a given religious tradition as a prere prerequisite for speaking of saints. For example, we're not only talking about the canonical Catholic saints. The word arhant in the Buddhist tradition is usually translated as saint. It indicates a similar type of figure. Um... We also have the idea of the sage in the Taoist tradition. We have the idea of the fakir, 
So the saint, in the context Nietzsche is using it, refers to what we would broadly call a holy man, someone who is unmoved by worldly desires or external circumstances and who seems to be above suffering, delivered from himself, as Nietzsche says. He who seems to live entirely for a higher principle or in devotion to a higher duty. This usually involves asceticism, which means, for example, uh, avoiding certain foods, avoiding sex, avoiding vices such as drinking or gambling. Sometimes even the handling of money is forbidden. There are even more extreme practices such as fasting, self-mortification, um, vows of silence. The Agori sadhus in India will do things such as live in graveyards and cover themselves with cremation ash and so on. The European monks of some traditions would, you know, whip themselves. So when the Buddha uh, was experimenting with different religious traditions, at one point he began fasting so rigorously that it said he became like a skeleton of a man and you could see his ribs through his skin. Um, and, you know, of course, if you know about Buddhism, you know, eventually that's why it's called the middle path between hedonism and asceticism, right? Is uh, Buddha eventually rejects that. But in the course of... It's just you, you see through his story that this was a way that many people were pursuing the holy life. Asceticism is the denial of the normal desires that a human being would have, and even voluntary acceptance of additional suffering and hardship. And it's the vow to live a life that resists all of the normal striving and the pleasures that we all crave and enjoy. This is why in the image of the ascetic, we see a picture of a human being who says, I no longer, who does not live for the little desires of I. And the proof of this is in the pudding, as we might say, because asceticism is so defiantly anti-natural that it almost seems to be self-evident that anyone who would live that way must be above giving in to their own nature, right? They must be a master over nature itself. That's the image we see in the saint. The saint shows himself to be above the world that the rest of us live in by the simple evidence of the fact that he doesn't partake of it. And this seems to then set the saint above everyone else who lives in that world. Um, so Nietzsche sees a direct link from these very physical, concrete, uh, hygienic practices, dietary restrictions and so on, to the abstracted power of the saint. This is a passage I quoted from before when we talked about the master and slave morality, but it's very important to understand how it is the power of the saint could arise in the minds of men. So we'll quote from it again uh, as a refresher. Just as Genealogy of Morality, Book 1, Part 6, quote, One should be warned against taking these concepts, pure and impure, too ponderously or broadly, not to say symbolically. All the concepts of ancient man were rather at first incredibly uncouth, coarse, external, narrow, straightforward, and altogether unsymbolical in meaning, to a degree that we can scarcely conceive. The pure one is from the beginning merely a man who washes himself, who forbids himself certain foods that produce skin ailments, who does not sleep with the dirty women of the lower strata, who has an aversion to blood. No more, hardly more." End quote. And so, the saint is the pure one, and that it's on this account, by resisting all these things, that he strikes wonderment and, and even fear into the hearts of men, even in comparison to the ranks of the warrior aristocracy, those of the master morality. Um, and for an example of this, um, we might consider the way that Diogenes appears to us as an equal, 
or even a standing a degree above Alexander the Great. Um, so the story, of course, you know, Alexander the Great is the quintessential example of what Nietzsche would call a man of action, or, you know, historically speaking, a great man, you know, someone whose accomplishments were not intellectual, but very, <laughs> you know, it's his accomplishments are accomplishments of physical combat and conquest. And so, and his, what we find admirable about him is how he demonstrated a famously, you know, superhuman resolve, a famous, uh, in, just power of endurance. He seemed to have a magical quality of charisma for inspiring his men, uh, which lasted through his whole career, and albeit a short career, until, of course, you know, his men refused to follow him to India, uh, having already conquered most of the known world at that point, or at least the world known to Macedon. So Alexander is a noble among nobles, a warrior among warriors, and a great man among great men. And in the famous story, when he one day meets Diogenes, the philosopher who renounced the world of material comforts, um, or even of basic social conventions, who lives in a barrel outside of town with only dogs for company, um, he, when he meets uh, Diogenes, so Diogenes, it's important to understand why he's such a cynic, right? Or what were the words cynic? why it uh, comes from Diogenes, what cynicism really means. It's because Diogenes believes that the men who live in civilization have all become false and superficial, and they chase after things which are of no real value. And so Diogenes decides to pursue only that which is of true and lasting value. Um, and so things like sunshine and the air we breathe are things that no one can give and no one can, can take away. And that's uh, those are the true gifts of nature. These are the types of things that Diogenes thinks has value. And so when Alexander the Great comes to offer Diogenes whatever it is that the mangy, dog-like philosopher wishes, Diogenes only says, get out of my sunlight, or stand a little out of my sunlight. So many of you probably know this story. I think the reason why the story is so popular is that we enjoy the idea of someone like Diogenes setting himself above Alexander. Um... And, uh, you know, it's through philosophy, that is, through knowing what one really ought to value. One can set oneself above the endless strife and the games and competitions and the social ladders and so on and so forth. And so in this story, we have the leader of the pack, the person who played the game the best, who's best suited for winning the social competition. But even this person appears to us beneath the man who will not even play the game because he says the game is beneath him, right? So when the victor comes by to offer this abstinent person the spoils of the game, um, Diogenes demonstrates he's truly above it all by his complete lack of interest even in the spoils. Now, maybe this you might object to this example because Diogenes is not a saint. He's not a holy man by any stretch of the imagination. But he offers us a wonderful example of someone... Diogenes is an ascetic in some sense, right? That's why I'm using him as an example. Through abstaining through all these worldly desires, he appears to set himself in favorable contrast to even the king of all the world. So this is the power the holy man gains by excising his passions and living in defiance of um, his own desires. And so because the power, power is the thing that life seeks after um, in Nietzsche's uh, in Nietzsche's mode of analysis, right, within his framework. And so the priest or the saint presents sort of a riddle to that, right? But now with this understanding, we have a general theory as to why the ascetic priest or the saint would arise. This mean this is a means of becoming powerful. And so naturally, a type would arise to fill that 
that slot, right, that would use that as a means of gaining power. So long as that means of gaining power is available, some some form of life or some type of person will fill it. And so it's for this reason Nietzsche writes in Daybreak uh, 113, quote, Indeed, happiness, taken as the most alive feeling of power, has perhaps nowhere on earth been greater than in the souls of superstitious ascetics, end quote. So that is sort of uh, what we might say is the argument uh, for the saint. You might, or you might be wondering, like, okay, well, so where does the criticism come in? But for most of the rest of the episode, we'll look at a couple other passages, but I'd like to focus on a section of Nietzsche's work where he discusses the development of this type of figure, where he includes an analysis of the power of asceticism, but also um, it's a scathing criticism. This is the third essay of Genealogy of Morality, which is entitled, What is the Meaning of of ascetic ideals. In section one, he gives a number of potential explanations for the meaning. Um, and I think that's a good place to start with this passage, so I'll just quote from there. Quote, what is the meaning of ascetic ideals? In the case of the physiologically deformed or deranged, the majority of mortals, an attempt to see themselves as too good for this world, a saintly form of debauch, their chief weapon in the struggle against slow pain and boredom. In the case of priests, the, distinct, the distinctive priestly faith, their best instrument of power, also the supreme license for power. In the case of saints, finally, a pretext for hibernation. Their novissima gloriae cupido, their repose in nothingness, God, their form of madness. That the ascetic ideal has meant so many things to man, however, is an expression of the basic fact of the human will, its horror vacui. It needs a goal, and it will rather will nothingness than not will. Am I understood? End quote. Sometimes whenever Nietzsche ends a passage with, am I understood, I uh, imagine that's teacher Nietzsche coming out in his work, right? It's like, do you understand me, class? Any questions? <laughs> so first, uh, just a couple things. Novissima gloria cupido means newest lust for glory. Um, that's what he's attributing to the priests. And horror vacui is uh, the horror of the vacuum. Um, so the horror at nothingness, right? Uh, man would rather will nothingness than not will. So asceticism is not limited to saints alone. It has meant many things to many people, but we see in this passage that Nietzsche thinks that the most extreme form of asceticism, which is the caliber of asceticism that we see in saintly life, approaches an attempt to dwell within nothingness and gain some sort of rest or repose from life. This is somebody who seeks to find liberation, salvation, nirvana, heaven, and so on. Um, and uh, this is a person who experiences life most painfully. Nietzsche also mentions the majority of people in some way are physically or psychologically imperfect. And so we, we might say that to, to some degree, most people are maladjusted to the harsh realities of life. But to the, the greater degree that one is, the more attractive one will find a doctrine or a practice that sets you above life. So it's not, it's not enough simply to reject life. One must place oneself above it. Um, 
It's this kind of tendency that Nietzsche sees in mankind as a result of his will to power doctrine. That will is the driving force within everyone. It's constant uh, and ever forceful, never satiated, and it goes where it will find or create power. And so the will to power of a botched person who finds himself ill at ease with the world will produce a means of escaping from and ultimately um, setting himself above the world. And for the famous dictum that one's will shall aim at nothingness rather than not will at all, we might call to mind Schopenhauer's assertion that the various holy names for liberation are simply means of disguising the void, that all holy striving, all striving against the grain, striving against one's desires, attempts to resist or destroy the passions, uh, that's a secret desire for nothingness. Schopenhauer, in fact, concludes his world as will and representation with this assertion that we must now be open about what it is that we're seeking in the holy life, that all of these metaphors are simply means of obfuscating to ourselves that the holy will seeks for nothing, or more properly, for nothingness. So this is perhaps part of Schopenhauer's great influence on Nietzsche, why Nietzsche admired Schopenhauer's honesty, but furthermore it carries with it a charge that nihilism is what sits at the bottom of the saint's type. That this type which seems to wish to cleave itself away from the blindly willing mass of humanity, which as we said simply follows after its instincts in the manner of the animals, um, the, the saintly type cleaves itself off into a void and achieves this so-called elevation of itself by becoming above life itself and thus its will dissipates into nothingness. And so we already have, I think, in outline, the fatal problem with the type of the saint and why the saint is a noble attempt at creating a higher type, but one which leads to a dead end. Nietzsche, in fact, discusses Schopenhauer at length in the third essay of the genealogy, and he actually begins by questioning uh, Wagner's descent into asceticism, um, citing as evidence the fact that Wagner began to celebrate qualities such as chastity in his later career, following his seduction into Christian style values that Nietzsche saw uh, manifest in the opera Parsifal. Wagner is Nietzsche's idea of what happens when an artist becomes seduced by asceticism. He then moves on to discuss what happens when a philosopher begins to exalt the ascetic ideal, and the natural candidate for this is Schopenhauer. And again, you know, Wagner was very influenced by Schopenhauer. It was one of the things that Nietzsche and Wagner had in common. And, you know, it should be noted this essay is written, this third essay of genealogy this is written in 1887 around the time when Nietzsche is writing you know he wrote book five of the gay science this is a year after his second preface for the birth of tragedy um, so if you're familiar with all this it's, it really seems that within 1886 and 87 around the time when Nietzsche had he he was going back and writing new introductions for a lot of his works. I recently heard from somebody I talked to that um, in one of the biographies I read of Nietzsche, which I haven't read, that he, in his letters, he actually talked about destroying some of his early works. But since they were already in circulation, he decided instead to release new editions with uh, parts added to sort of help uh, reevaluate them or complete them. It's very George Lucas of Nietzsche. But, um, but around this time, you know, 1887, Nietzsche, in a lot of these writings, he is processing the ways in which he drifted from Schopenhauer and Wagner, which were the two biggest influences of his youth, arguably, um, because he writes a lot about his alienation from his former mentors during this time. 
So, um, Nietzsche sees the Schopenhauerian love of asceticism as linked inextricably with Schopenhauer's view on aesthetics. Funnily enough, uh, just you know, because of the the syllabic similarity there, uh, the, the word escapes me. I guess uh, homonyms—that's what they are, right? So he sees uh, Schopenhauer's praise of the ascetic ideal in Schopenhauer's views on art. Schopenhauer was, of course, influenced by Kant in this. And Kant wrote that, quote, that is beautiful, which gives us pleasure without interest, end quote. Nietzsche accordingly boils Kant's attitude down uh, to, quote, le disintéressement, uh, which is, you know, the French word for disinterestedness. Uh, he writes, uh, this is in Genealogy of Morality, Essay 3, Section 6, that Schopenhauer, quote, stood much closer to the arts than Kant, and yet did not free himself from the spell of the Kantian definition. How did that happen? The circumstance is remarkable enough. He interpreted the term without interest in an extremely personal way on the basis of one of his most regular experiences, end quote. So Schopenhauer believed the central human challenge is to get free of the blind striving of the will. Um, and that's not all too dissimilar from how Nietzsche originally conceived of what a higher type of human being would be. The, uh, you know, uh, genuine person who casts out the beast. Schopenhauer believes that this can be practically achieved in one way through the disinterested contemplation of art. One can be told a representation of the world, but the representation is not something at which our will is aimed. So the visual arts, for example, allow us to contemplate the forms of existence within the world, such as nature, animals, people, landscapes, so on and so forth. But none of these things, uh, so long as they are mere artistic representations, can ensnare our will. When you hunger, you hunger for a real apple, not a painted apple. You fall in love with a real woman, not a painting of a woman. And so art allows us to contemplate the form without being painfully ensnared by the desires of our will. That's the Schopenhauerian view on art. Nietzsche writes about all of this, quote, Of few things does Schopenhauer speak with greater assurance than he does of the effect of aesthetic contemplation. He says of it that it counters sexual interestedness like lupulin and camphor. He never wearied of glorifying this liberation from the will as the great merit and utility of the aesthetic condition. Indeed, one might be tempted to ask whether his basic conception of will and representation, the, the thought that the redemption from the will could be attained only through representation, did not originate as a generalization from this sexual experience. In all questions concerning Schopenhauer's philosophy, by the way, one should never forget that it was the conception of a young man of 26, so that it partakes not only of the specific qualities of Schopenhauer, but also of the specific qualities of that period of life. Listen, for instance, to one of the most explicit of the countless passages he has written in praise of the aesthetic condition. Listen to the tone, the suffering, the happiness, the gratitude expressed in such words." Quote. Uh, a quick note here. Lupulin and camphor, from what I can tell, are old herbal, herbal remedies. Um, you know, camphor from for example, comes from the bark of a, a certain tree. It's used to treat skin conditions. So I guess in ages past, the, the, these were maybe seen as a way of dulling down one's sexual desire. But Nietzsche then quotes from 
world as will and representation. He cites it as um, page 231, which I suppose is volume one of the work, which contains the first four books, because Kaufman says actually it's this refers to a section from book three, section 38. Um, and I, I may have quoted from this in my lecture on Schopenhauer, but in any case, quote, this is the painless condition that Epicurus praised as the highest good and the condition of the gods. For a moment, we are delivered from the vile urgency of the will. We celebrate the Sabbath of the penal servitude of volition. The wheel of Ixion stands still, end quote. So Ixion was a figure in Greek mythology, a demigod and a king who was invited to live among the gods at Olympus by Zeus, who is, of course, the king of all the gods. Ixion then grows fond of the goddess Hera, Zeus's wife, and attempts to seduce her. Uh, he fails, of course. Uh, Zeus discovers what Ixion's designs on his wife are, uh, and uh, in punishment, Ixion is condemned to be lashed to a burning wheel, which shall ever turn, revolving endlessly through the sky. Or, according to to the more popular version of the myth, this happens in some part of the underworld that Ixion is condemned to. Either way, he's bound to a burning wheel, spinning for all eternity in punishment for his inability to stop himself from chasing after his desires. So Ixion, ever spinning on the burning wheel, is Schopenhauer's metaphor for the pain of desiring, the pain of willing. Schopenhauer's whole project is aimed at achieving liberation from this pain, and thus making the wheel of Ixion stop and stand at rest. This is effectively a metaphor for what the Buddhists would call um, getting out of samsara. Um, but, you know, he's using Western myth here instead, which I, I uh, very much enjoy finding those parallels. But how this all relates to the type of the saint is, of course, the saint is the ascetic among ascetics. The drive towards asceticism, the elevation of man through the type of sainthood. Nietzsche has already argued earlier in Genealogy of Morality is the result of will to power and is achieved through those very literal and unsymbolic means we talked about, rules of hygiene, ascetic practices, and so on. And so Nietzsche has taken the very awe-inspiring and apparently mystical power of asceticism and shows us how it's a manifestation of a will common to all human beings, and how it's achieved through physical, practical means. Similarly with Schopenhauer, Nietzsche psychoanalyzes Schopenhauer and even suggests we could locate the inspiration for Schopenhauer's entire philosophy and his own relationship to his sexuality. That in the same way the saint achieves a state of awe in the eyes of ordinary men, and thus a kind of power over them, um, by not indulging in his desires, Schopenhauer uses aesthetic contemplation as a form of ascetic practice and experiences deeply the power of this disinterested contemplation to pull him out of the hormonally powerful sexual urges of a man and being a man in his mid-twenties, right? And as such, he beholds the power of it, and he then attributes a great significance to aesthetic contemplation for its power to negate the will. And so what would seem to be Schopenhauer's deep philosophical or spiritual insight, the ability to make the very wheel of Ixion itself stand still, may just be an expression of something which is very painfully vulgar and physical. Just a young man who is stubborn beyond all measure and desires, you know, that's would be Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer's self-image, right? And and so he refuses to allow himself to become a slave to his biological impulses, and who therefore uses the only practical means he finds 
of distracting himself from that impulse. And then he then looks to what this practical means is representation through art and then spiritualizes the act of representation into the basis of an entire philosophical system. So uh, what we can learn about the saint here is that the saint achieves power over himself and over the minds of other men even by practicing, for example, chastity, such that over long generations, the idea of chastity comes to represent a sort of transcendent virtue in and of itself, something written into the moral fabric of reality itself, indicative of something beyond its vulgar meaning an expression of the inner nature of God may manifest, for example. So this is a kind of transposition that has taken place as we spiritualize and imagine to be transcendent whatever it is that we find has power. And uh, almost always there's something painfully vulgar, literal, shallow at the root of it. Nietzsche points out that Schopenhauer's asceticism more or less led him to agree with a definition of the beautiful that is incongruous with how most people would understand the beautiful and how greatly, you know, you, we can see this and how greatly his definition differs from the conception of the beautiful of, for example, Stendhal. Uh, Nietzsche writes, quote, Stendhal, as we have seen, a no less sensual but more happily constituted person than Schopenhauer, emphasizes another effect of the beautiful. The beautiful promises happiness. To him, the fact seems to be precisely that the beautiful arouses the will, interestedness, end quote. And I personally believe, I mean, that's, I would, that's closer to my conception of the beautiful. You know, things we find beautiful in real life are things towards which we are not disinterested at all. Our will seeks after the beautiful more vigorously than anything else. And so what we have in Schopenhauer is another example of how the priest or we won't call him a priest because he's a philosopher again. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about artists and philosophers in my episode on the other type, the saint. But, but again, what we're really exploring here is asceticism, right? And so the ascetic inverts the physical embodied good. That was the good of the previous warrior aristocracies where truthfulness is truthfulness indeed. Beauty is the beauty of the body. Good is the physical good that you bring forth in the world. The priest, or we might say the ascetic, or the saintly type, takes those things and makes them immaterial. The beautiful becomes something abstract, something which actually deadens the will, cuts off the desire for that which is physically beautiful, in Schopenhauer's case, right? Sexual desire. Instead, directs its attention to that which is merely representation. Beauty becomes abstract and intellectual. And so Schopenhauer unifies aesthetics and asceticism and offers an excellent example of all the flaws of elevating man by casting out the beast, all of which are manifested to the highest degree in the saint. And so Nietzsche distills a wonderful insight from his considerations about Schopenhauer and Kant and Stendhal and others. He calls Schopenhauer a tortured man who wishes to gain release from his torture and thus writes, quote, what does it mean when a philosopher pays homage to the aesthetic ideal? Here we get, at any rate, a first indication. He wants to gain release from a torture, end quote. And of course, in the very next section, if this sounds, you know, a bit too gloomy, uh, Nietzsche advises us not to treat his uh, use of the word torture as too negative, and he's quick to point out, as a former student of Schopenhauer's, that this isn't to just dismiss Schopenhauer out of hand. He writes in section 7, quote, 
We should not underestimate the fact that Schopenhauer, who treated sexuality as a personal enemy, including its tool, woman, that instrumentum diaboli, needed enemies in order to keep in good spirits, end quote. So, interestingly, Nietzsche takes a critical eye to Schopenhauer's misogyny there, and he sources it to his antagonistic relationship to his own sexuality. Um, I say it's interesting because Nietzsche, you know, given his own misogynistic <laughs> remarks strewn throughout his writings, but here as he says, Schopenhauer sees women as mere instruments of the devil, manifestations of his personal enemy, uh, which is sexual desire. But Nietzsche says he needed enemies. He emphasizes the word needed in that passage. He points out that throughout history, there's a marked trend among philosophers, just as among the priests and theologians, against sexuality. And that Schopenhauer is merely one remarkable example among many. You know, he lists off a number um, of great philosophers who were unmarried. Plato, Descartes, Heraclitus, uh, Spinoza, Kant, Schopenhauer. And he goes further and he says, one cannot even imagine them married. He implies more or less that part of what set their minds afire and allowed them to be so dedicated to the pursuit of words and ideas is, um, I mean, he more or less argues that sexuality creates unfavorable conditions for thought. It's an intrusion, a distraction. Um, it's a it's, it's a hindrance from engaging in the world of abstraction that these philosophical types uh, thrive in. And in the course of this discussion, he then invokes one of the great saintly types of all time, Gotama Buddha, as an example of one who sees all ties of blood, all romantic bonds, all familial relationships as a mere intrusion, uh, or as we said, a distraction from the great work. This is in uh, Genealogy 3, uh, part 7 again, quote, Every philosopher would speak as Buddha did when he was told of the birth of a son. Rahula has been born to me. A fetter has been forged for me. Rahula here means little demon. Every free spirit would experience a thoughtful moment, supposing he had previously experienced a thoughtless one of the kind that once came to the Buddha. Narrow and oppressive, he thought to himself, is life in a house, a place of impurity, Freedom lies in leaving the house. Thinking thus, he left the house. Ascetic ideals reveal so many bridges to independence that a philosopher is bound to rejoice and clap his hands when he hears the story of all those resolute men who one day said no to all servitude and went into some desert, even supposing they were merely strong asses and quite the reverse of a strong spirit." I think this passage is wonderful um, for explaining all Nietzsche sees in the saint. The supreme saintly types like Buddha even inspire awe in us philosophers because they offer an image of this bridge to freedom that we're looking for. This appeals to philosophers because the philosopher wishes for freedom from constraint on his thought, freedom from the judgments of others, freedom from the voice of the common morality. And I think it's fair to say that Nietzsche's idealization of solitude or of being a solitary wanderer traveling the mountains or the desert um, is very similar to the saintly types that we've been describing. It's a similar image to that of the traveling sage or the, you know, the holy man who goes off into seclusion and, you know, goes and meditates in a cave for a long time. This is, I believe, why Nietzsche entertained an admiration for the ascetic ideal at all, because he has some of that type within him. 
Nietzsche, what he's quoting from uh, in the passages about the Buddha is from the Pali Canon there, in the story of Buddha's leaving home. The term abandoner of home was continued throughout the ages in the Buddhist tradition to refer to somebody who has ceased being a householder, someone who participates in society and in the market and raises a family and has all these obligations. That's called a householder in the Pali Canon. Uh, you know, the truly uh, entering the stream, as they say in the Buddhist tradition, is going to be a monk and leaving home. And so being one who's abandoned home, that's a common refrain in a lot of writings in the life of a monk. Um, we might recall the reference to Epicurus, um, he, he cites there, um, or we might recall, you know, Epicurus, he, he preached the virtue of the hidden life, the life lived no longer in pursuit of worldly desires or of wealth or fame. Um, a simple, humble, hidden existence. So there, again, there's an attraction to the life of solitude that Nietzsche shares in common with the holy life. And so even as we're getting really more deeply into the criticism of the holy man, uh, he admits the excitement that he finds in the sense of freedom that one gains when no longer entangled with the world. And so another indication of why Nietzsche found the holy man as a convincing model for the higher type in the first place, way back in the untimely meditations essays but now writing in 1887 he ends the passage with a biting phrase the ascetic may simply be an ass a beast of burden yes but also you know an ass is sort of a ridiculous animal it's an object of comedy in classical literature and i mean in modern literature too um and so it's very uh it's it's significant that he calls the holy man a beast of burden so it's similar to the the spiritual phase of being the camel that he talks about in Zarathustra, right? Um, but so what was valuable about the aesthetic is the image that he offers of the holy man who had liberated himself from bonds of servitude, in this case referring to servitude to one's own passions and servitude based on obligations to others and obligations to society. But Nietzsche clarifies, the holy man is the opposite of a strong spirit. Um, the holy man's not an example of strength but of weakness before his own tyrannical drives. That's really the thrust of the criticism he's getting at here. The saint as the most powerful will in, in the pursuit of nothingness, most powerfully driven towards nothingness, um, indicates he's the most botched type of soul, as we've already said. His inner nature is chaotic and in turmoil. Nietzsche makes this charge in the Dawn 331 in a section called Rights and Limits, quote, Asceticism is the proper mode of thinking for those who must extirpate their carnal instincts, because these are ferocious beasts, but only for such people. End quote. So, asceticism is a need, but only for those who experience their inner urges as ferocious beasts. This is the cause of the self-torture that Nietzsche describes in Schopenhauer. Um, the need to be free from this torture is what drives his philosophy. And so the botched souls who have the, the greatest need to escape, who are the most botched, these are the people who we come to know as saints. And as saints, they then offer us the image of man who sets himself above the world and thus repudiates the world, and who appears to us to be therefore supremely strong when in fact they're the weakest and most ill-constituted of all human beings. Um, this is their trick. This is because they, they ultimately aim their will at nothingness. as That's the, the hidden consequence of their elevation above life. Um, meaning the saintly ideal is nihilistic, and then the because this trick uh, does not simply remain with a saint, but then goes on to inhabit the minds of other men, they end up spreading nihilism. 
And yet, this botched world-denying creature nevertheless offered us something. Uh, it had to offer something to mankind, this type, uh, or it wouldn't have existed, right? There, there is a power there. that we, That's what you have to remember about all this. But again, the higher type did not achieve elevation through the intellect. The, dis, the discipline of the ascetic is not something he gains by thinking. Um, for Nietzsche, the, the ascetic drive is first and foremost an instinct. So the holy man is the manifestation of the weakest of instincts, rendered as an image of man who sets himself above the world. Um, and it shows mankind, this type shows mankind that it's possible to live this way, to live in defiance of the passions. The saint therefore reveals to us this truth that you can conquer the drives. And this is why Nietzsche writes in Genealogy 3, Part 9, quote, Every smallest step on earth has been paid for by spiritual and physical torture, end quote. Um, now, in Genealogy of Morality, uh, section 10, the next section of essay 3, Nietzsche makes reference to an earlier work, uh, one that I've also been drawing on throughout this, which is Daybreak, or The Dawn, and he specifically brings up section 42, which is a passage that helps to explain the origin of the saintly type. In section 42 of the Don, Nietzsche attempts to give an outline of the origins of the life of contemplation, that is to say the life of the priest, um, the monk, the ascetic, even the philosopher could be included here. Um, and he writes of how pessimism was once the natural default view of the world. And here he probably means his conception of Hellenistic style pessimism, right? Pessimism of strength. And uh, so basically this is Nietzsche's uh, explanation of how that pessimism of strength gave rise to the pessimism of weakness that he criticizes. And so he writes, quote, During barbarous ages, when pessimistic judgments held sway over men and the world, the individual, in the consciousness of his full power, always endeavored to act in conformity with such judgments. That is to say, he put his ideas into action by means of hunting, robbery, surprise attacks, brutality, and murder including the weaker forms of such acts, as far, as far as they are tolerated within the community. When his strength declines, however, and he feels tired, ill, melancholy, or satiated, consequently becoming temporarily void of wishes or desires, he is a relatively better man, that is to say, less dangerous, and his pessimistic ideas will now discharge themselves only in words and reflections. Upon his companions, for example, or his wife, his life, his gods. His judgments will be evil ones. In this frame of mind, he develops into a thinker and prophet, or he adds to his superstitions and invents new observances, or mocks his enemies. End quote. Uh, skipping further down in the passage, uh, he writes, quote, in later years, all those who acted continuously as this man did in those special circumstances, i.e. those who gave out pessimistic judgments and lived a melancholy life, poor in action, were called poets, thinkers, priests, or medicine men. The general body of men would have liked to disregard such people because they were not active enough and to turn them out of the community, but there was a certain risk in doing so. These inactive men had found out and were following the tracks of superstition and divine power, and no one doubted 
that they had unknown means of power at their disposal. This was the value which was set upon the ancient race of contemplative natures, despised as they were, in just the same degree as they were not dreaded. In such a masked form, in such an ambiguous aspect, with an evil heart, and often with a troubled head, did contemplation make its first appearance on earth, both weak and terrible at the same time, despised in secret, and covered in public, with every mark of superstitious veneration. Here, as always, we must say, pudinda origo, end quote. And the Latin phrase uh, at the end, of course, means uh, shameful origin. So, as always, shameful origin to supposedly holy things. So, in any case, when Nietzsche later references this aphorism from Daybreak, uh, he references it in that essay in Genealogy we've been going over, he summarizes it by saying that it explains the conditions under which the earliest contemplative types had to live. It's often Nietzsche's concern that we remember that the origins of everything, and in every innovation in society, culture, religion, comes out of a great need, um, and a certain belief or practice or social role doesn't take hold unless it proves to be of power. And so how is it that in those barbarous ages, as Nietzsche calls it, we saw the type of the priest ever become tolerated and not simply cast out of society? Um, that's the kind of question one should ask if you accept Nietzsche's case so far for what the holy man is and how he stands in opposition and in judgment over the world. Why would these warrior societies venerate the priests? And so he explains this by invoking how the priestly castes had to become as fearsome as the warriors. They had to inspire at least as much fear from the people in order to counterbalance the degree to which they were despised. And um, so this is, of course, the suggestion of Nietzsche's that cruelty is an inherent part of the power of the contemplative types. And so here's a little further elaboration on this idea, still in Genealogy 10. Oh. And I'll quote in an abridged form from this passage, quote, The inactive, brooding, unwarlike element in the instincts of contemplative men long surrounded them with a profound mistrustfulness. The only way of dispelling it was to arouse a decided fear in oneself. As men of frightful ages, they did this by using frightful means, cruelty towards themselves, inventive self-castigation. This was the principal means these power-hungry hermits and innovators of ideas required to overcome the gods and tradition in themselves, so as to be able to believe their own innovations. I recall the famous story of King Vishvamitra, who, through millennia of self-torture, acquired such a feeling of power and self-confidence that he endeavored to build a new heaven. The uncanny symbol of the most ancient and most recent experience of philosophers on earth Whoever has at some time built a new heaven has found the power to do so only in his own hell. End quote. Nietzsche's assessment of how the saint offers us these religious ideas, I think, is beautifully conveyed symbolically in the Vishvamitra story. Um, the saint acquires power by being cruel as the other cruel men were during the cruelest period of human history, which is our prehistory, really. Only they were cruel. To themselves they directed their cruelty inward torturing greatness out of themselves resisting everything pleasurable and pursuing the endurance of pain to such a degree that one gains terror inspiring self-mastery but in a fascinating implication 
Nietzsche suggests this is how these divine ideals were birthed into existence by the priests, that their example of the resistance of towards worldly pleasure, their rejection of the physical for the spiritual, um, standing above the world, is what creates the world beyond in the first place, that this comes first. Um, this is all nihilistic to Nietzsche, but this is what produced the image of heaven, of the world beyond. Um, and so the holy man, the ascetic priest, in the minds of, of other people, that they're the living proof of the kingdom of heaven, and that's how the idea enters into our minds. So everything great comes out of, out of profound uh, physical and spiritual torture, as he said in the early passage, including heaven, which is a great... Um, it's not, you know, just the promise of eternal contentment or pleasure that Nietzsche wants. He, in fact, rejects that part of heaven. But the ability to um, see mankind as something of transcendent value, that's sort of bound up in the Christian idea of heaven, for example. That's something he wants to salvage. That's a great thing. It's just that uh, it was created by these awful means. And so it's after these sections in Genealogy of Morality, Nietzsche goes into his most scathing critique of the priestly castes and their supreme type, the saint, and the fact that the priests create afterworlds is part of the function that such types begin to fulfill in society. That is, they take the direction of the most dangerous forces in the human psyche and alter it such that those dangerous forces do not threaten to destroy everything. That's the utility the priest begins to fulfill. The priest can be conceived of as an artisan who works with the raw material of the individual human psyche. And so the priest's flock is his artistic material. The dangerous force that the priest primarily deals with, or the primary uh, utility of the priest, is that how he re redirects resentment, which Nietzsche considers to be the most poisonous mental state. Resentment is, of course, caused when one's will is thwarted. When one cannot exercise their power upon the world, resentment sets in, and the person becomes bitter and destructive. Resentment is the psychological force that motivates people to become vindictive and to seek revenge. And so the saints who are the weakest and the most ill-constituted and the most botched, among the botched, eventually become charged with redirecting the resentful impulses of the people. Why is this? Well, in Nietzsche's view, the holy man sees in the weak and resentful people the opportunity to gain power over them. And society at large sees in the priest's ability to do this as they see, they see a social good. And finally, the people require the priest because only a soul who is resentful itself can actually intervene and do this kind of psychological alchemy. Nietzsche writes in Genealogy 3, part 14, of the priests, quote, They are all men of resentment, physiologically unfortunate and worm-eaten, a whole tremulous realm of subterranean revenge, end quote. So the priestly type, the, the contemplative type, rife with his own vindictive feelings toward the world, which underlies all his holiness, by this fact is able to stand above the worldly desires and um, as he takes this revenge through triumphing over his own worldly desires um, he then is able to sow these images and ideas into the hearts of men and then the service the priest performs is that he allows people to take an imaginary revenge rather than a physical revenge um, 
it's but the power he possesses is very real right this is how the priestly castes of the world how every type of contemplative person came to have a rival base of power to challenge the warrior aristocracies the metaphor nietzsche uses as to how priests can do this is that uh there was a necessity for a doctor who was himself sick for certain ailments right we might think of in the old days like leprosy um so nietzsche writes in in uh, part 15 quote dominion over the suffering is his kingdom that is where his instinct directs him here he possesses his distinctive art his mastery his kind of happiness he must be sick himself he must be profoundly related to the sick how else would they understand each other end quote the great trick the holy man pulls however is not as simple as the narrative commonly goes of giving the masses uh, some revenge on like the people they don't like that will take place in this imagined afterlife. This would be to, I think, understate the sublime brilliance of what the priest's type of moral revaluation does. I mean, yes, the priest does allow the resentment of the sick and the weak people of the community to discharge off into this afterworld, but this is not quite the masterstroke of the priest's work. All of the examples of all the holy men and the saints would come to naught if it could not manage to deal with resentment where it lives and generates daily, which is within one's own heart. Shunting it off somewhere is one thing, but if resentment keeps growing and growing, the saint's work would never be done. And so he must provide a solution for the resentment problem at the root. And so Nietzsche writes in the same section, quote, for every sufferer instinctively seeks a cause for his suffering, more exactly, an agent, still more specifically, a guilty agent who is susceptible to suffering. In short, some living thing upon which he can, on some pretext or another, vent his effects, actually or in effigy. For the venting of his affects re represents the greatest attempt on the part of the suffering to win relief, anesthesia, end quote. And so Nietzsche surmises the entire reason why human beings feel resentment is physiological. The experience of having our will thwarted is painful, and thus we redirect cruelty inward. Cruelty, which is one expression of power, right? A crude expression, we might say. Whenever it cannot be directed outward, it returns inward. And this satisfies us and acts as a salve for our suffering at not achieving our will or at having our will stopped or dominated. The priest is the figure who aids us in redirecting this cruelty. And so Nietzsche writes, quote, I suffer. Someone must be to blame for it. Thus thinks every sickly sheep. But his shepherd, the ascetic priest, tells him, Quite so, my sheep. Someone must be to blame for it. But you yourself are this person. You alone are to blame for it. You alone are to blame for yourself. This is brazen and false enough, but one thing at least is achieved by it. The direction of resentment is altered. End quote. And so the saint, as we've discussed, is the master of self-cruelty. And thus, in his example, he instructs all of us in the ways of self-cruelty. And the flock he attracts is naturally the weak and the botched. They flock to the priests and contemplatives and saints because only they 
No, the subterranean feelings of revenge and resentment and guilt and self-hatred that all the weak people of the world share. And so Nietzsche more or less sums up the role of the priest and the power of the priest over men insofar as the priest deadens the feeling of suffering by allowing cruelty to flow back inward, thus giving a catharsis. This curbs resentment and offers mankind an ideal. Specifically, the saint appears as a world-conquering image for those who are lacking in meaning or an ideal and do not have the strength to create one or to live up to the harsh physical ideals of uh, especially the ancient societies. And so Nietzsche writes uh, 3, part 20 of Genealogy of Moralities, and I've abridged this a bit, quote, the chief trick the ascetic priest permitted himself for making the human soul resound with heart-rending ecstatic music of all kinds was, as everyone knows, the exploitation of the sense of guilt. It was only in the hands of the priest, the artist in guilt feelings, that it achieved form. Oh, what a form. Sin. For this is the priestly name for the animal's bad conscience. Cruelty directed backward has been the greatest event so far in the history of the sick soul, end quote. So now we have a rechristening and an understanding of what sin is. It's the elevation of self-hatred to new heights as a means of dealing with these negative feelings that arise as a result of weakness. And again, this is a somewhat awe-inspiring thing. At another point in genealogy, Nietzsche writes that if beings from another planet or a god were to look down on the earth, and take note of what was distinct about our species, they would perhaps call us an aesthetic species. They might say that what's distinct about mankind is this amazing edifice of the abstract, this psychological domination over all of us by the priestly types. And the celebration of the denial of life, the deadening of the extremes of life, this all provided man with a goal and a cause for discipline, and again, as we've said at the beginning, offered the possibility of transcending the animal world. Nietzsche draws his conclusions about this in the last section. Um, this is part three, or sorry, uh, essay three, part 28, quote, Apart from the ascetic ideal, man, the human animal, had no meaning so far. His existence on earth contained no goal. Why man at all? was a question without an answer. The will for man and earth was lacking. Behind every great human destiny, there sounded as a refrain, a yet greater, in vain. This is precisely what the ascetic ideal means, that something was lacking, that man was surrounded by a fearful void. He did not know how to justify, to account for, to affirm himself. He suffered from the problem of his meaning." End quote. Nietzsche goes on to write in this passage that the will itself was saved. And how is this? Because, quote, man would rather will nothingness than not will, end quote. So with a repeat of that phrase, Nietzsche ends this third and final essay of the genealogy of morality and thus pronounces the final word on the type of the holy man. The concluding idea is that in spite of these rather dark accusations about who a saint is and or who the priest is, and what exactly it was that they provided for mankind, Nietzsche draws our attention at the end to the positive contribution. It's not a small thing to give mankind a destiny. And it is giving mankind a destiny that represents Nietzsche's highest task as well. Um, it's one of the things Christianity did and that Nietzsche thinks we have to recreate in some sense. But the problem is that for all the reasons we've discussed, 
Christianity was ultimately nihilistic and thus destined to die, which means we can't rely on it any longer. We have to see the priest and the saint for what they were. We have to recognize what is weak and the botched and uh, what is the weak and what is the botched, as he says in Antichrist 2, and help it to perish. And so to drive home what I mean here, as a sort of concluding thought for this whole episode and this whole discussion, I'd like to consider how Nietzsche regarded the Manu Law Book. This is the Hindu text that sets out the caste system that governs Hindu society. In his unpublished notes, Nietzsche criticizes the Manu Law Book, but that's a text that he elsewhere praises, such as in the Antichrist, where he says the sun shines over the whole book. And the reason Nietzsche approves of, of such a book is because it acknowledges the order of rank and the need for societal hierarchy, which he thought was essential. Uh, in contrast to the viewpoint of Christianity or democracy, that all men are created equal. Uh, but in his notes, as I just said, he, he, he turns and he criticizes the Manu Law book. Why? Well, the Indian caste system, as you may know, elevates the Brahmins, the priests, to the highest type. The type for which the entire system of society is the reason. In that, in that sense, the Brahman becomes the justification for the society, the model for the ideal human being in Hinduism. The model is the priest. And Nietzsche says this is the Manu Law Book's major flaw. Uh, in contrast, in the Antichrist, he says near the end of that work, in our new revaluation of values, the priest is to be our chandala. The chandala is the caste of untouchables in Indian society. The caste of untouchables still exists today, in fact. Now, certainly Nietzsche's views on caste systems are out of step with our modern thinking, so we can set all that aside. But consider the implications of what he's done here. The saint, while he may have been one of the higher types, now must be regarded for what he truly is. Something dangerous. Someone who is sick and who must be kept away from the healthy. The great mistake was elevating the saints to the highest type, whatever the benefits of that mistake may have been. But now, we recognize that the saint should be treated like a leper. The saint, for all the good he has offered mankind, is not a bridge to the overman. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.